This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. They are both murdered by the Benders, but why kill an 18-month-old? Did that surprise you that they did that? I think for a lot of people, it's really what just tips them over into truly monstrous territory. Their crimes are obviously extremely awful anyway. Mary is too young to be able to offer any kind of testimony or anything like that. So there really is no reason to kill her. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Susan Jonasis has tackled a really big true crime case, the story of the Bloody Benders in Kansas. They were a family of serial killers who murdered at least 11 people in the late 1800s. I thought I knew the story of the Benders, but I really didn't until I read her book called Hell's Half Acre. The story of the Bloody Benders is an epic story. Why are we so interested in them? Well, I think the crime at the time it happened was such unusual and just brutal, appalling series of crimes. Nobody had ever seen anything like that in the States at that time. Obviously, you've got this beautiful young woman at the centre, Kate Bender, and that really, the newspapers just latched onto that as the kind of linchpin of the story because it was, one, super unusual, obviously, to have a family committing crimes, and then, two, you've got this kind of proto-femme fatale figure who's very easy to mythologise. And I think the nature of the crimes as well, this idea that within a community, this family are masquerading as kind of upstanding if standoffish citizens. And then over a three-year period, they kill 11 people at least within that area, both from that community and passing through. And then obviously they flee. It's a mystery. There's no wonder, I think, that it's pervaded true crime like it has. And I can pick out some other Ted Bundys. I can pick out some other Edmund Kempers. I just cannot place another Bender family. I just can't think of another equivalent. It's interesting when you look at the family themselves because we still don't have that much information about the members because they essentially appeared and then disappeared and they didn't really leave any kind of written records. We don't really have their voices. But I think they also, the more I looked into them in my research, the more I felt that the older couple, Ma and Pa, that's all we know them as, and the younger couple, John and Kate, that Kate was probably related to the woman, but that she and John, while they pretended to be siblings, were more likely common law husband and wife 
there's some sources that date from a slightly later period which indicate that the way they interacted with each other was a lot more what you'd expect kind of from a romantic partnership. And you see that at the time in the newspapers, except the newspapers sort of hint that they're incestuous half-siblings because that's a bit more kind of scandalous. Well, let's start from the beginning. And throughout this, I'll be interested in you dispelling myths because there are a lot of myths about the family. So what is Kansas like where the Benders live post-Civil War? So Kansas in the 1870s is a really interesting kind of mix of locations. Southeast Kansas, where the Benders committed the majority of their crimes, had suffered a lot before and during the Civil War. It was a site of lots of guerrilla warfare between Union and soon-to-be Confederate forces. And so a lot of the people who lived in that area kind of already had quite a violent experience of residing in that space. But around the time the Benders moved there, the Osage people have been removed from the land by the government and And the government has encouraged white settlers to move into the space. But at this point in time, it's actually really on the up in terms of population numbers. So you have kind of these vast prairies where the weather's really bad, where the conditions are really dangerous, where horse thieves are roaming around. And then you've got like these little clustered settlements. So lots of people will set up a homestead and then more people will come together and build a town. So independence in Kansas is like a classic frontier town. It's got banks, it's got lawyers' offices, it's got groceries, it's got dry goods stores. And people are constantly coming in. People are moving in and out. You've got families, you've got business businessmen. And a lot of the people in the area, the young men and the men in general, are all Civil War veterans. Hmm. So there's this kind of big dream of building a new life on the frontier where you can sort of put aside all the violence of the previous decade and buy into this idea of progress. And then obviously you've got kind of a sense of community, but there's also a level of suspicion between different settlers because you've just got so many different groups of people. And, you know, just in the late 1800s, there's no nationalized identification system in the United States. So you could literally change your name and be anyone. So you you have a right to be suspicious. Yeah. So especially in areas which are kind of up and coming where you have like railroad towns where the railroad's coming through, you've got a lot of transient workers. Most of them are young men and then everything that comes along with industries like that. So you've got sex workers, you've got saloons, you've got people looking to capitalize off that. And at this point in time, Southeast Kansas is kind of struggling with that reputation. There's a deeply unpleasant incident in a place called Lador, which is just north of where the Benders set up their cabin where a group of outlaws have come up from Indian Territory, which is just below the border, and they wreak all sorts of havoc in the town and sexually assault a couple of young women, and the town just enacts its own justice and hangs them all from a tree. And nobody ever does any time for that, which you can sort of understand it was a profoundly traumatic experience for the people in that settlement. So you've got kind of pocketed violence between different families as well, people getting into land disputes, Hmm. and then people just disappearing, having horses stolen or even just like falling into a creek on the prairie or freezing. So it takes a long time for people to feel like there's an actual problem in the area in terms of people going missing. So let's get the name straight. There's Ma and Pa. And the younger man is John Gephardt, who is likely related to Pa. And the younger woman is Kate, who is likely related to Ma. 
So they turn up, first Pa and John turn up in the late winter of 1870, and they build the cabin, which will obviously kind of then go on to become infamous. And they set this up on the side of a trail that joins Osage Mission to Independence. So this is a trail that's frequented a lot by all sorts of different people in the region. So Ma and Kate turn up. And the older couple kind of throughout the three-year period, they stay essentially out of the community, neither really speak English. They're quite standoffish. They'll like fraternize if they have to, but they sort of avoid it. Whereas the younger couple make a big effort to kind of ingratiate themselves at the local Sunday school. Kate spends a lot of time hawking her spiritual services in different towns in the area. She also lectures on things like free love which make her this kind of very exciting prospect for the young men in the area. And John Gebhardt makes a big effort to appear kind of overtly religious. You read a lot of accounts of him reading the Bible outside the cabin. And there's also this kind of idea that maybe there's something wrong with him, but it's not malicious, and that Kate is essentially caring for her disadvantaged brother. So the younger couple work really hard to kind of make themselves figures in the community. But Kate specifically was quite controversial because she could be very charming, but she also got very pushy and aggressive when she was sort of told no often by female members of the community. Hmm. So what do we know about Ma and Pa? So the general assumption is that they, or one of them, is from the Rhineland in Germany. They're certainly recent immigrants, I think you could say. They've still got very strong accents. They've obviously not made that much of an effort to learn English. They didn't really need to because actually lots of people on the frontier spoke. They call it Dutch, Hmm. which is either kind of German or maybe even a Scandinavian language. So with Paul, I had read somewhere that people described him as making sort of guttural sounds, like not even speaking German or Dutch or anything else. I sort of got the impression from the family that the younger couple had a very mean sense of humor and the older couple were just not interested. I think Pa probably, he kind of fits that very stereotypical idea of like a grumpy old man. And I think given the nature of the crimes and these stories about him sort of shuffling up to people on the land and asking where they're from, and then if they're from the area, he'll kind of shuffle away and that will be that. But if they're not, he'll get very aggressive with them. So there is a kind of disjointed narrative when it comes to him specifically about whether he was this sort of grunting, violent man or whether he like was actually quite intelligent but just chose to not display it. Okay. And they bring over these two young people. Do we have any idea of ages? Are we just thinking 20s for Kate and John? So Kate, she is described in the governor's proclamation as being in her early 20s. And Rudolf Brockman, who's a neighbor of the Benders who interacts with them quite a lot and then testifies in a later trial, he describes her as being in her late teens even. So she was definitely quite young when they arrived. And Gebhardt, I think, is described as being sort of 28. So I would say early and late 20s is how I would characterize them. So you've got these four people. They've built a cabin. They're right along a trail that, for the 1870s, it sounds busy, sounds like the thoroughfare of the 1870s in Kansas. What makes them, do you think, decide to convert this into, what, like an inn or a bed and breakfast? So when they first move into it, there's a great kind of thing where when the men are living there, there's a sign out the front that says, Grocery's. 
and it's spelt wrong. And then when the women arrive, the sign is changed to groceries. And this actually becomes a really important clue later on as the case unfolds because it's so distinctive. (laughs) But so they obviously had the intention of running an inn as soon as they moved there. I think the niceness of the cabin as a place to stay uh, is sort of up for debate. I also don't necessarily think they had that many goods available that maybe weren't available in town. They're obviously kind of a stopping off point. So essentially you'd stop off to be fed and maybe buy some tobacco or oysters in a tin, as was very popular at that point in time. Mm. And you could sleep inside the cabin or outside the cabin, depending on the weather. But they obviously, because there are lots of these kind of trading posts in the area. And I think they thought, oh, well, we can homestead. We can just make a bit of money on top of the homesteading by running an inn. But it sounds like you alluded a little bit to Kate Bender having some interesting freelance opportunities, one of which is spiritual advisor. Can we talk a little bit about that? Spiritualism in the 1870s was growing for sure. Yeah, I mean, so spiritualism was sort of decided, it was founded in 1848 by the Fox sisters, who obviously then have their own kind of controversial legacy as the century progresses. And it focuses on this idea that we, as people who are alive, have the ability to speak to dead people, whether that's relatives or famous people, or, you know, maybe the person who owned the house before you, as in the case of the Fox sisters. And it has this kind of interesting overlap with crime as well, because people get very into contacting victims of crimes. But it also became a mouthpiece for women because the characteristics of a medium who you would need to help you talk to the dead were considered to be more feminine. So if you were impressionable and submissive and all of that kind of stuff, that would make you a good medium. That's why women were good at being mediums. But actually lots of women used it as a space to promote votes for women and more rights for women and freedoms for women. And it also kind of trod this line of being taboo in some circles. And it was a good way to become famous too. And I think that's why Kate became so interested in it. It allowed this level of manipulation of individuals. I think of her essentially as a con artist. Well, what's so interesting to me about spiritualism in that time period is it's coming right after the Civil War where you have all of these people who are dead and the rise of spiritualism really, really grew after the Civil War where you have Abraham Lincoln trying to contact his son in the White House. And so mediums were able to come in and make a lot of money, and most of them were not legitimate. And it sounds like Kate Bender had some clients. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she would kind of go into towns and she'd get up on town hall stages and she'd get up on stages in music halls and she'd sort of do a little bit about who she was and what she could do. And then she'd go around the patrons and offer more kind of like intimate services. And then there's a great account of a man becoming extremely annoyed because she starts hassling people for money Hmm. when she sort of forced her services on them. So this would be like palm reading and like a circle and all of this kind of stuff. And a lot of magnetic healing they did too. She got really into that with another woman in the area. I think she, because of this and because of the intimate nature of things like having a seance, she was very popular. People would go out and see her at the cabin and she had this kind of pull over men who sort of just like the idea of going and hanging out with her for an evening. But also I think women in the area who were vulnerable as well. Tell me about the free love. I wrote down free love and underlined it for some reason. So in the 19th century, it was much more about like women's rights to just love who they wanted, to marry who they wanted. It's not kind of as sexy as we might think of it in the 1960s, 1970s. Just to clarify. (laughs) Yeah. But 
the kind of phrase in itself was certainly enough for people to be interested in what she had to say. And you said John really tried to present himself as a religious man. So he attended Sunday school at Harmony Grove very consistently. He impressed the township trustee, a man called Leroy Dick, with his ability to kind of reel off these very extensive Bible passages. But this is really interesting because he is like this for the first couple of years. But then kind of as the Bender's reputation in the community begins to unravel, he starts attending church much less. He is visibly less interested in the Bible. His kind of oeuvre of faith starts to disappear. Hmm. And I always thought it was interesting that he, because Kate attended Sunday school a lot as well. So I think the community, because they were, for the most part, nice, charismatic young people, the community kind of tolerated their weirder behavior. But as they start to become a bit more aggressive, that tolerance just starts to drop off. When do things start going badly for people who encounter the benders? So the first kind of known disappearance, which has like a specific name attached to it, is a man called James Ferrick, who works for the railroad, and he's over in Baxter Springs. And this is around 18, summer 1871. And his wife goes over to New York with a little baby for Christmas. He says, I'll see you after Christmas. He disappears hmm. and is never seen again until by his neighbors and not seen by his wife for a very long time. And she's constantly writing to the neighbors to points along the railroad line saying, have you seen my husband? He was here. He's not written to me. And people essentially tell her, well, he's probably left you or he's died or he's just disappeared and it doesn't really matter. Just find another husband. And she doesn't have the resources to like do a proper search. And that's essentially what you see as more bodies start to turn up on the prairie. Some of them are identified, some of them are not. And then there's an escalation in the winter of 1872. But there's still nobody kind of with the influence to really start investigating these disappearances until the following spring. Is there a life event that changed for them that made them do this, do you think? It's my personal opinion that you're looking at a family of career criminals, like that's essentially what the Benders were, and that before they arrived in Kansas, they were committing crimes in some capacity. At the time, there was a big belief that they were working as part of a wider group of horse thieves, which was something I was actually able to confirm and to name some of those people they were working with. So that was really exciting. But I think potentially they moved to this area ostensibly to rob people, to steal horses, steal livestock. Kate can sort of do her con act that she's doing. But because of the location, they realized they were able to murder people who were coming through and just to completely avoid suspicion. Initially, they do target young single men who a lot of them have really nice horses. It's a very specific thing you find out later, even if they're not carrying cash, they're on a nice horse. So they target people who are not local. So when they disappear, it's very difficult to think that the disappearance is malicious. And even if it is malicious, no one's thinking, oh, the family who run that cabin, they must be murdering everyone. They're thinking, oh, they got got by a band of Indian raiders or mugged in Texas. Do you think that the older couple, Ma and Pa, participated in these murders? Did they take an active role? Yeah, so it's my belief that probably the men did most of the murdering. I think Kate certainly didn't mind the benefits she got in terms of like material reward. And she certainly was not bothered enough to ever really 
not involve herself. I think that for a lot of people was the real sticking point of whether or not she was a victim or a perpetrator herself. But I think that Gebhardt was probably the driving force behind the violence. I think that Parr was certainly involved in it as well. And I think the women were there. Kate was there to essentially act as like a draw. So she would go out the front of the cabin and sort of hang out and wash her hair and, you know, do bits and pieces. She's the bait. Yeah. And men would see her and be like, oh, I'm going to stop in there for dinner. And then they'd talk to them. So they'd be like, where are you going? What are you carrying? Do you have any relatives in the area? That sort of thing. And then if you sadly answered incorrectly to those, you were probably going to be dispatched. I think, as is often the case you see with serial killers, the first murder is maybe not intentional. And then they feel like, actually, we can get away with this. And it's easier. It's much easier to just, in that time, to just kill the person whose horse you've taken, because then you don't have to worry that they're going to go and get a posse to hunt you down. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What were the ways that they dispatched people? I'm thinking about the false floor. So the person would come in and then usually Kate would kind of take the lead in terms of interacting with them. They would ascertain what the person wanted, whether they were willing to stay the night. So their cabin was divided by a wagon curtain into kind of like the dining area and the grocery store and then the area where the family slept and also where you would end up. <laughs> you were particularly unlucky. Yes. And essentially while the person was eating or drinking and Kate was interacting with them, they'd be struck on the head from behind the curtain by Pa or by John and that would stun the person and all the bodies have this very specific set of wounds they have the back of their head caved in by a large hammer and then their temples are caved in by a smaller hammer and then they have their throat slit as well so it's a very violent but very consistent method of killing and then to kind of get the body out of the space as fast as possible they would pull up this trap door they'd shunt the body down into the cellar and they'd just leave the person down there to kind of bleed out if they were still alive. And also because it would get cold and they couldn't dig into the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'd sometimes people would be under the cabin for a long time and then they'd transfer them to the orchard. And the smell... People didn't notice a smell coming up. I guess some parts of winter, it's cold enough where they're sort of frozen. So there was a level of kind of like general farmyard smell, I think. But they talk about this when they're excavating the site later. It's like there's dead pigs, there's dead cows. Yeah. There's all sorts of dead things everywhere all the time. And we don't have that anymore. Unless you've grown up in a rural area on a farm, you probably haven't smelled what a dead thing smells like. Whereas back then, people would identify the scent of death, but they wouldn't necessarily be suspicious about it. So James Farrick in 1871 and his wife would love to know where he is, but I can't even imagine having his spouse go missing and waiting on the post to arrive with news. Mary Farrick was 
writing letters. And she was writing a lot of letters, Hmm. but people essentially just weren't interested. He wasn't an important enough figure. And at that point in time, she was in New York because she didn't want to come back to Kansas to look for him with her son when she had nowhere really safe to go to do that. So they've gotten away with this. What happens next? So their behavior essentially escalates. Up until spring of 1873, there's a man called William Jones who's found in a creek by two little boys. And he has this very specific set of wounds, which is what later allows them to link him to the benders. Hmm. There's also a man who's never identified who's found in a campsite who has a similar set of wounds. There's a young man whose father identifies him, but he had been robbed on the open prairie and then torn apart by feral hogs. And is identified from his clothing. When I started my research, there these very specific descriptions about the number of men on the prairie who were found, who were attributed to the benders. And actually a neighbor of theirs says, a man called Maurice Sparks, says that he felt like they were just attacking people on the prairie as well. They wouldn't necessarily wait for them to come to the cabin. The men would just go out. And I think that is a correct assumption to make, given the nature of the people they're discovered to be associating with, who are kind of a roving band of psychopaths. So what are they spending the money on? You mentioned that Kate was enjoying the material goods that came off of these robberies. Is that right? She was very obsessed with her appearance. Lots of accounts written later about her describe her as being dressed very well. She wore lots of feathers in her hair. Later, when she's on the run, she complains constantly that she's having to wear men's clothes and that she can't have anything nice, despite being worth a lot of money in terms of a reward. But that is one of the big questions is were the benders sitting on a collection of money that they were then eventually just going to run off with anyway? Hmm. What was going on there? Was Kate doing the bulk of the spending and Gebhardt just enjoyed being a criminal? There's lots of questions there. So the benders are murdering people and the final three deaths are very, very crucial. Tell me about the father and his 18-month-old daughter. The key disappearance is of his neighbor, George Lonker, and his little girl, Marianne Lonker. And George is a widower. He is also a Civil War veteran, and he had come out with his wife, and they'd moved kind of next to William York and William's family. And then after she dies, he tries to kind of make a living in that area as a blacksmith. He's very popular, but ultimately he decides it's best if Marianne's taken back to her grandparents in Iowa. So they set out in the winter of 1872. And this next development is horrific and heartbreaking. George and his 18-month-old daughter are both killed by the benders. Why would you kill an 18-month-old? Did that surprise you that they did that? I think for a lot of people, it's really what just tips them over into truly monstrous territory. Their crimes are obviously extremely awful anyway. But like you said, I think they could have even taken in her and said, oh, it's a relative. You know, there was no, if you in their mind feel like they need to kill George Lonka because they want access to the wagon and the horses. Mary is too young to be able to offer any kind of testimony or anything like that. So there really is no reason to kill her beyond the fact that they were perhaps worried that somebody would come by the cabin and start asking questions and hear the crying. But it is really awful. And, you know, that's also what really gets to the community because they find her and she's still got her little mittens on when she's found in the grave with her father. And there's a lot of confusion initially. She's reported as sort of eight 
or 12 and all of that kind of stuff. But she was 18 months old uh, because it obviously hadn't been that long since her mother had died in childbirth. And I think George Lonka's story is just so sad. He's this deeply traumatized man who moves to start a new life with his very young family. And it just ends in an unimaginably awful way. And then George's relatives sent a note to their neighbor, William York. So in the spring of 1873, William York gets a letter from Lonka's father-in-law saying, where are they? They didn't arrive. And William York is a Civil War veteran as well and a local physician. And kind of most importantly, in terms of exposing the benders, he's the brother of a very kind of controversial at that point in time state senator called Alexander York, who is embroiled in a big political scandal at the beginning of 1873 and is sort of alternately beloved and despised in the community. But William is obviously part of this very powerful, very kind of famous local family. So William York gets a letter from his neighbor's father, is that right? Yeah. And says, where is my son and my granddaughter? And he just saddles up and goes out because he respects George Lonker that much? Yeah, I think William, the main characterization we have of William actually comes from memoirs written by his wife, Mary. She, in 1875, was really sick of the attention that the Bender family specifically were getting and not the victims. So she wrote this account of her experience of it. And William was a man who went through a very traumatic experience in the Civil War and kind of had this real, he was a very empathetic, pathetic man. He was a very good but troubled person. Hmm. There had been kind of word of disappearances in the area, kind of just town gossip. And I think they would have all been aware of it. But he did really care about George and Marianne. He wanted to know exactly what was going on. He wanted to know where they were. He felt like he could do it. And honestly, I think initially, he probably didn't realize just how dangerous the situation was. And their father doesn't want him to go and look for them. But he buys a really, really, really nice horse to do the search on and off he goes and it is his disappearance and his wife who is very kind of fastidious about her timekeeping and when he doesn't get back is like where is my husband he wouldn't just disappear and so goes William York also he goes looking for his neighbor and he's obviously killed in the same way with the benders it's my belief that he because there actually lots of people saw him he was definitely doing kind of like detective work he was going along the route that they would have taken and definitely obviously stopped at the bender cabin and I think he probably they maybe would have killed him well I don't think they necessarily would have killed him because he was such a prominent local figure in the community but I imagine that he started asking very pointed questions and they panicked because their crimes had really escalated over this kind of winter period from about October 1872 to spring of 1873. Like they were killing a lot more people, whereas before there'd been kind of four or five month gap Hmm. between disappearances. So I think they were maybe already preparing to leave and this just sort of tipped them over the edge. So William York goes missing. His wife, I'm sure, begins to panic when he doesn't come home when he's supposed to. She goes to her brother-in-law, I'm assuming, Alexander York, and says, your brother's gone. So there's a real kind of like, 
I call it like a cinematic kind of thing that happens here where he doesn't come home. She gets very wound up. She rides to the local post office for letters. She doesn't find any. She then goes to Alexander. Well, it's um, Manasseh's house, the York patriarch. She goes to that house. There's nobody there. She's running around in the house. And then her mother-in-law comes in and it turns out they already know Mm -hmm. that he's disappeared. So he was traveling to Fort Scott to see his father. He said he'd call on Alexander on the way home and he doesn't. And Mary doesn't know all of this. She's just like, my husband is late. But the family all separately become aware that something's gone wrong. And then they all converge on this house kind of around the same time. And Mary talks about how she looked at her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law looked at her and she just felt like she was going to pass out because she immediately knew that she was right. Something was wrong. Where do you even start in the 19th century to look for someone? I guess you follow the trail he would have followed. Yeah, so they organize because of the influence they have in the local area. Alexander's also a lawyer and their father runs a big nursery, like a plant nursery. So they organize a big group of volunteers to essentially start combing the landscape. And they also get a lot of volunteers from, because Fort Scott is a bit further over from some of the other spaces and that's where that family are based. But they get a lot of volunteers from the more direct local area who either know about the disappearances, have disappeared family members themselves. It sort of varies between like 60 to 150 people at any given time. And they do, they stop at different settlements. They ask questions. There's a boy who reports seeing William on the horse and he remembers him because the horse was really nice (laughs) and that sort of thing. But they become sort of unfairly focused on a town called Lador, which they trash and focus on a man called James Roach who kind of runs the town. He runs the saloon. And later on, they sort of knee-jerk arrest a massive amount of citizens from this town who really had nothing to do with it, except that they were just the rowdier town in the area. And they hire um, Thomas Beers, who's a detective. And so they are systematically kind of combing through the area to talk to people. But they've not really encountered anything like this before. And the community have various meetings where they decide to search properties. And eventually, Alexander York does end up at the Bender property. And this is the other kind of famous interaction in the case, is that he turns up and sort of talks to Kate, talks to Gebhard, but mostly to Kate. And she says to him, by this time in the papers, William York has been pronounced dead or likely to be dead. And she says, oh, if you come back by yourself, I can contact your brother for you. And he's like, no, I think you're all mad, basically. And he leaves the Bender cabin and he regroups with his younger brother, Ed, and with the rest of the search party. And he says, I think essentially they're all just idiots. Like they're too stupid to have committed a crime like this. He calls them like simple Germans or something Mm -hmm. equally derogatory and just doesn't think that they're worth pursuing any further. And then that night, flee the state. They just abandon the cabin and they disappear. And that sits with Alexander for the rest of his life, is that that interaction he had with them. Not only did he interact with his brother's murderers, he prompted them to flee and then didn't think that they were capable of committing a crime like that. Wow. And so they pack up, do they pack up a wagon or how do they go? They have a notoriously badly kept wagon where one of the wheels is actually kind of pushed the wrong way. Mm. And this becomes a big clue because at one of the dump sites of the bodies, there's wagon tracks where one of the wheels is dished incorrectly. So they jump in the wagon, 
they go to a place called Chanute, where they then catch the train. Basically, they all get on a train. They abandon the wagon on the outskirts of the town. That wagon is then later found and it has the groceries sign on it. So everybody recognizes it as the Bender's wagon. Oh, wow. And they split. So the older couple go to St. Louis, Missouri, and the younger couple head down into Indian Territory. So what becomes of the cabin? They search it and they find underneath what's in the basement. Yeah, so interestingly, the cabin is sort of left alone for about a month. There's bad weather, there's other things going on. And then a local man called Billy Toll is driving past the cabin and he hears this whining noise and it's an animal in distress. And he goes to see what it is and he finds a pig that's obviously not been fed for a very long time. He finds a lot of dead animals on the property. The cabin looks a bit like it's been ransacked. And he initially thinks, oh, the people have got the benders as well. So this kind of prompts the search. And then over a three-day period, it becomes very apparent that, no, they didn't get got by the benders. They were actually the people committing the crimes. And they find the bodies in the orchard. They find William. They find Marianne and her father. And then it turns into essentially a tourist attraction. Mm. And thousands and thousands of people descend on the cabin and tear it to pieces. Do they eventually burn it down or what happens? It literally gets dismantled by people looking for souvenirs. So the railroad company puts on special trains for people to come and see the Bender cabin. Mm. All these people descend. They're pulling up saplings from the orchard. They're stealing things from the cabin. They're digging up dirt and putting it in jars, all sorts of stuff like this. And then people are also selling like fake Bender souvenirs kind of by the following week, which have nothing to do with the Bender crimes. One of the major things is that before kind of the chaos erupts, Leroy Dick finds the hammers that are believed to be the murder weapon. Hmm. And we went to see them. (laughs) They're now on display uh, in a museum in Cherryville, Kansas. It's a big hammer and a small hammer, is that right? It's three. So it's a big sledgehammer and then two shoe hammers. And it's sort of debatable which one was used for what, but all three of them were found kind of under a stove. And they're now on the wall with like a little certificate that shows their authenticity. So Ma and Pa are in St. Louis and John Gephardt and Kate Bender are in Indian country somewhere. Do they just vanish? Is that what happens? Is that the end of the story? So traditionally, the kind of narrative of the Bender family has been, they committed the crimes, they disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. Lots of people think they were killed by a posse of people from the local area. Hmm. But one of the major breakthroughs that I made when I was researching the book was that actually detectives knew for quite a long time where the Benders were. And that really what inhibited their ability to get them was kind of lack of funds and lack of cooperation between the states. So they trace the benders. So John and Kate jump the train in Indian Territory. They're then taken by an unnamed guide down to Texas, to Denison. And then over the next kind of year, they regroup with some men called the McPherson brothers, who are actually the sons of quite a wealthy family from Kansas, who've chosen to live this life of like horse thievery instead. Hmm. One of them is called Missouri Bill, and the other one's just called Frank. And Frank had, just before the Benders fled, Frank murdered a baker in a town near the Bender cabin after trying to sexually assault the baker's wife. Hmm. So he is the man who I think is probably a lot more connected to the Bender crimes, just 
just because of the level of violence. And when he moves into that area, that's when the crimes escalate. Hmm. And Missouri Bill is the man who was running this ring of horse thieves. And he's mentioned by detectives, by the governor, by an outlaw who later gives a statement about the location of the family and the time that he spent with them. But it was really interesting for me to see that they didn't disappear there was just kind of this narrative that they disappeared Mm -hmm. because it was almost more embarrassing that they knew where they were, but they couldn't go and get them. So you think that was intentional on the part of the government at the time to sort of bury this information? I think Governor Osborne, who's the governor at the time, he's struggling because not only has he not caught the benders, he's up for re-election and he is being very heavily criticized for his kind of financial management. So he just says, well, that's it. I'm not funding the search anymore. So the detectives who are out there are kind of floundering because they can't get support from the Texas Rangers, which is really what they need to be able to go and get the family because the family are hiding out in the Texas panhandle. And at the time, they know they're there. The Red River War is going on. So there's a big conflict between indigenous people and the US military. And the benders are kind of sequestered in the middle of it. And they're trading with the tribes. And they're part of this group of people that fluctuates between kind of 10 people and 40 people, all who are fugitives. So where do we lose track of them in history? So we lose track of them in about 1877 in the sense that there's a man who is in prison in 1879 called Samuel Merrick, and he gives a series of statements to the superintendent of the prison, who then sends them to the governor of Kansas, and he gives really detailed movements of the family, who they're with, because he's a man in prison for horse thievery. He's caught in Indian territory with horses that belonged to a local chief, so he's sent to prison for stealing those. And while he's in the prison, he starts talking about the time he spent with the family. And he lists their movements right up until his arrest and then says, I don't know where they are now, but I could definitely go and get them. I would be happy to do this, but you'll need a lot of people. You'll need someone who knows them. And this for me was really interesting because lots of people felt like this was very legitimate as a lead. Alexander York expressed support for it. As I went through the statement, it matched up a lot with detectives statements from earlier on Mm -hmm. with things like census records and other prison records. But this is never followed up. And when he's released from prison, he offers again to go and get them. And he's just never taken up on the offer. It's amazing. And Alexander York doesn't get a hold of him. No, well, Alexander York's interesting, I think, because he gets to a point where he just wants to move forward from it. Like the guilt is almost too much. He's constantly harangued by newspaper reporters about, did you kill the family? Do you know where they went? And I think he would always say the same thing, which was, I think they were killed by other outlaws, which I think he's potentially right there. But he really tried to distance himself from the whole thing. And like Mary was just frustrated that people were only really interested in them as opposed to the victims and the families of the victims. And he would have been very annoyed because after he died, lots of his obituaries said that he'd killed the benders. Ugh. It's terrible. So what do you think is their most likely outcome? Do you agree with Alexander York that they were killed by other criminals? So I think that probably the older and younger couple split. I think life on the open frontier in the Texas panhandle was extremely difficult and very dangerous at that point in time. So they wouldn't have necessarily wanted to stay in that particular area for an extended period of time. Frank McPherson, he eventually kind of settles in the Colorado area, which 
John and Kate would have known well from John's time fencing horses. And I think Colorado was also kind of the place to be in the late 19th century. You've got like the gold rush, you've got there's lots of health springs and all of that sort of thing going on. And actually the York family, they all up and moved to Colorado where they run very successful businesses. Hmm. And I think it's unlikely that Kate and John would have tried to pull a scheme like the Benders had in Kansas. But I also think it's unlikely that they would have gone on to just not do criminal things. Because I think when you commit a series of crimes like that, I don't think you can just turn that off Mm -hmm. as a personality trait. So there's lots of different theories, really. I mean, there's one that Kate ended up running quite a well-thought-of boarding house in a town in Colorado where she was a real pillar of the community. Lots of people still believe that somebody from Kansas hunted them down and killed them. And then other people believe that some women who were arrested in 1889 and then released were actually the benders and had been allowed to get away with it. But it sounds like you think that their ending was a little bit more simple, which was at some point they probably became the victims of whatever environment they were in at the time. Exactly. So you think of all the kind of myriad ways that people were just dying on the open frontier anyway. It's totally possible that one of them fell off a horse and died, that one of them got sick, or they could have been killed by the U.S. military, by indigenous people, or other outlaws. They were probably, if they were killed, they might have even been killed by people who didn't know who they were. And also, the other thing I always get asked, Bend is such a common surname, they could have just kept that. In Labette County, where they were, where they lived, there were three other families with that surname. Wow. So you have 11, at least 11 victims, but I imagine probably more. And then that means you have at least 11 families out there who got no justice whatsoever unless they latched onto the idea that someone from their area went out and hunted this group down. Do you think that that is what predominantly what the families settled on just to have closure and move forward? That's sort of the prevailing opinion in that region today. It does allow for a level of closure. It also, I think, for members of the community, assuages some guilt that maybe they feel that they didn't notice what was going on. Mm. I think it also fits into a very traditional kind of frontier narrative regarding outlaws. They commit their crimes they receive justice at the hands of the community and it becomes mythologized in this episode of frontier history in that region. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's the easiest way really to achieve closure in a case like this where ultimately there just isn't any. What are the lessons for this terrible story of all of these dead people in this family that seemingly gets away with it? The thing that I found most interesting was how, as we see throughout the history of crime and even today, it takes such a specific type of person to go missing before people will do anything about it. Right. And obviously you've got historical context, which is general frontier life here. But there are a lot of family members who like try to reach out and say, no, I don't think they would have just disappeared. All of this kind of stuff. And they were just brushed off either by law enforcement or members of the community. And I think obviously it takes George and Marianne and then William and his powerful family for it to really do anything about it. And that we still see now. Some people get a lot more attention than others. And it turns out that all of that's just too late. So I think it's community awareness, really, and just listening to people. And looking out for each other. Look out for each other, yeah. Yeah. And when somebody tells you something's wrong, 
you should believe them because they're probably just not going to say it for whatever reason. And if they're saying it repeatedly and other people are saying it, then you should pay attention. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Stephen Davis on a hostage crisis and PTSD. Then all of a sudden, 14-year-old Jennifer Chapel looks out the window and she sees a couple of things streaking across the sky. And then they hear explosions. And then the plane shudders violently. The people who are outside looking through the window realize they're fighter planes and they're bombing the airport. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.